0: Follow along with me, if you will, from First Samuel. We're just going to be reading the first 18 verses. I'd like to point out, before we read those first 18 verses, there's a reason we're stopping at verse 18, and you can feel free, after I finish reading, to glance down at 19 through 20 and ponder that as we go through the passage. Let's we'll start at the beginning. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jero- Jero- Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, No, my lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. She said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. This is the word of the Lord. We are indeed thankful for it. title for this message is Peace in the Presence of the Sovereign King. or Sorry, Peace in the Plan of the Sovereign King. And again, I want to pose that question that I threw out to you earlier. What should we do when God seems to forget us? Did you notice that word forget in Hannah's prayer? If you look down again, verse 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant. You might immediately think there's a theological issue in that question. God can't forget anything. He knows all things, and he's not insufficient in his memory banks. Well, that's true. The Bible uses this idea of God forgetting in the book of Psalms, we see it in the, in the prophets and certainly here with this humble prayer of Hannah because it expresses the experience of the human heart. This is not a statement that is made by a theologically ignorant person in Israel. She knows that the Lord is limitless in all of his power. What she is expressing is words that express her experience before God. That is as if God had forgotten her. Perhaps for you this morning, you might be waiting on the Lord for something. You might be waiting for direction. You might be waiting for healing, be it physical, emotional, relational. You might be waiting on the Lord for provision. And the longer that we wait, the more prone we are to think and ask the question, has God forgotten me? You know, after the book of Judges, which historically comes right before 1 Samuel, you can imagine that the people would be wondering the same question as well, in a sort of national sense. Because in the book of Judges, we have that cycle that you remember, right? That the people were sent into the land, that they would sin by worshiping idols. God would bring them under punishment through their enemies. They would cry out to God. He would bring a Savior, a judge, who would deliver them from their enemies. They would have a short period of peace and obedience to the Lord and then start it all over again. Sinning through idolatry, captivity of their enemies, sent, crying out to the Lord, sending a Savior, peace and then sin all over again, over and over and over again. And what Samuel gives us is, in one sense, a turning of the page from that period where that cycle would continue. So now we're, in some ways, you see the cycle in a similar fashion, but there's going to be a definitive change in what God provides, no longer a judge, but a king And the way the people respond will be very similar, but it may also be that during times where they are being abused by their enemies, where they're constantly at war, they may have been asking the same question, has God forgotten us? Even in humility that question is asked. This is not a sinful question. The psalmist often asks it. And often asks it in the context of his own right standing with God. Why is it that God seems to have forgotten my plight and my problem? This is part of what we'll learn from Hannah in this passage. You might break down this passage into three sections as well the first eight verses being Hannah's problem, verses 9 through 11 being Hannah's prayer, and then verses 12 through 18 being Hannah's peace. So one through eight, Hannah's problem, nine through eleven, Hannah's prayer, and twelve through eighteen, Hannah's peace. We're gonna take some time to just look through the overall arcing story of this these first 18 verses and see this call that we might find peace in the plan of the sovereign king, just as Hannah has. Well, did you notice that this book doesn't start off with Samuel himself, nor does it start off with David or Saul. It starts off with this guy named Elkanah, who really we hear about in the first couple chapters, and then he never shows up again. Who is Elkanah in relation to somebody like Samuel? It's just his father, right? Well, that's a significant thing. But if you're reading this as the people of God, and perhaps it's the people, the original audience, perhaps, and thinking... About the history of your own people. And perhaps if you could, in one sense, just erase your mind from knowing what's going to happen in this book, you know that 1 Samuel is about bringing a king for Israel, God providing a king. You might open chapter one and say, maybe the Salkana guy is going to be the king. No. Okay, maybe his son is going to be the king. Still, no. But Samuel is going to play an important part in all of this. We learn about Alcana. There's some interesting historical background here, um, partially because Samuel ends up acting as a priest, but we see from his father's lineage that he's an Ephrathite. That means he's from the tribe of Ephraim. He's not actually allowed to become a priest, if that's true. Interestingly enough, there were some Levites, that is the tribe of Levi, who were the priestly tribe, who settled in Ephraim, And so, in one sense, some historians believe that Elkanah may have, in fact, been a Levite, and that he was called an Ephrathite because of where he lived, and that that might explain Samuel's devotion to the priesthood. That's neither here nor there for us this morning, but some interesting background. We move from Elkanah over to Hannah, his wife. Now, if you look at verse 2, you'll notice that Hannah is mentioned first. Why is that? Besides the fact that she's our central character in this story. Why do you think Hannah was mentioned first? First wife? Yeah. but This is what we kind of surmise from this, that Hannah was the first wife. And we see in verse 2 the initial problem already. After he's presented in his lineage, and then it says in verse 2, he had two wives. Now, kings are told not to have multiple wives. There's, there's a couple mentionings of commands regarding having multiple wives, but overall, it was pretty well accepted in Israel as it was in the nations around them. And in fact, God doesn't really call out people every time in the Old Testament where this practice was permitted in some ways. In the New Testament, we understand that marriage is between one man and one woman forever, and that's clearly laid out, so this isn't an excuse for Christians today to practice polygamy. But one thing that we see in the Old Testament stories, anytime somebody has two wives, does it go well for them? No, it doesn't. It never goes well. And so these first words in verse two, he had two wives, already should make us go, oh boy. And if you're married and a guy, you might wonder, oh boy, I don't even want to imagine what that was like. Marriage is marriage as hard as it is, right? It's difficult. It's a struggle. It's a blessing. It's wonderful. Absolutely. It's a gift from God. But there is struggle in it. And this is what we see with Elkanah. Now, Hannah is mentioned first. We presume she was the first wife of Elkanah. And that makes sense because she is the one who has what problem? What is Hannah? She's barren, she has no children. Penina then, is the second wife who had children. So you can see Hannah's problem very clearly. It is barrenness. In the context of the family, it meant there were less farmers if you don't have children. It meant there was no retirement plan if you don't have children. On a national level, it meant you're not contributing to our military or our economy. And interestingly enough, if you go back to Genesis 3, on a theological level... Hannah may have even considered that she might not have been a part of God's redeeming work through his people as he presented to Adam and Eve. Do you remember in Genesis 3, it's a very important chapter, the fall of man, the sin of Adam and Eve. And as God is laying out the consequences of everyone's sin, he makes a promise in chapter 3 in verse 15. This is a good memory verse. Okay? Theologians call this the Proto-Evangelion. This means first gospel. But he says this to Eve, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Sorry, he says that to the serpent, rather. He shall, you shall bruise his heel, but he shall bruise your head. Or another translation would be crush your head. He will defeat the work of the devil in the garden. And in one sense, part of bearing children in Israel was playing out that plan and being a constant reminder that one day, one child born of a woman is going to crush the head of the serpent and make all things right. And Hannah, as a barren woman, may very well have considered she was excluded from God's redemptive plan in history. We move on from her barrenness to Elkanah's devotion. Elkanah seems like a really good guy. He used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh. Now, Shiloh is a very important place. We talked about it last week a little bit. This is kind of the central place of worship for much of uh, not only the Old Testament, but particularly for Samuel. But Elkanah is a very devoted guy, and the author makes sure that we know that. He then goes on to say that it was during the days of the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, who were priests of the Lord. And we know pretty soon here, we're going to find out that those guys were not good leaders whatsoever. They are terrible, terrible priests. Self-absorbed, selfish, not serving the people. So we get a little taste of that. We go down to verse 5. There's one other interesting little grammatical thing I want to point out to you. Maybe just make you scratch your head for the rest of the afternoon, what to do with it. Just about all of our modern translations translate verse 5 the same way if you look at it with me. Hannah gave, he, But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed his womb. Now there might be a footnote if you're reading the ESV. There's a footnote down there and we can look at it. The meaning of the Hebrew is uncertain, septuagint, and although he loved Hannah, he would give Hannah only one portion because the Lord had closed her womb. This seems to be a pretty significant difference, doesn't it? Either the Hebrew is telling us that he would give one portion to Hannah or he would give a double portion to Hannah. So which one is it? Obviously, most English translators think it's what we have here, that he would give a double portion even though the Lord had closed her womb. What do you do when you come across these kind of things in Scripture? You scratch your head a little bit, you think about it, and then you try to forget about it, right? Maybe that's just what I do. Unfortunately, in my profession, I can't do that. Well, what are the alternatives here? Either Hannah got a double portion or she got just a single portion because she had no children. She had no one to share it with, right? Or Elkanah says, I love Hannah, and I'm going to take this opportunity to make sure that she knows that she's my favorite. I think that the rest of the story helps us put the significance of that translation challenge into context. Does Hannah eat any of this portion? Not at first, at least, right? She's not eating it anyway. The focus isn't so much on, well, did Alkana give a double portion or a single portion? Either way, we know this, Alcana was attentive to the fact that his wife did not have children. And either he regrettably only gave a single portion or he encouragingly gave a double portion to her. We're not totally sure on that because of the original Hebrew and its ambiguity in one sense. But then the next question we need to ask is, how does that affect the overall story? How does that affect my application of it? Overall, we'll see that her husband understood he knew what was going on with her, and his actions were determined by this situation she was in of being barren. We might come back to that later, but hopefully that suffices for a little while. So, in this barrenness, in her problem, while Elkanah is giving her a double portion or at least acknowledging, hey, look, I understand here that you're barren, she has a bigger problem than Elkanah, and it's Elkanah's other wife. Why in the world is Panina bothering Hannah? Somebody tell me. What does she care? She's jealous because Panina is bearing all the children, Hannah's getting all the love. You can see where the animosity is coming and that she is being provoked. Interesting thing. This word provoke is the only time that it's used and translated this way in the Old Testament. It's the literal word for thunder. Panina used to thunder at Hannah. Nowhere else in the Old Testament is it used as somebody speaking to another person. It's always in reference to literal thunder. So it's kind of an interesting grammatical note there too to express the severity of these provocations. And so Hannah has this problem. She's being provoked, and particularly the author points out, you know, she had to live with this reality every day, didn't she? Every day she would wake up and say, I'm the barren wife. There goes my husband playing with not my kids. Can you imagine? how Heartbreaking every single day. And then on top of that, if Penina wasn't bothering her all the time, we know specifically that she really laid it on thick. Anytime they did what? Anytime they went to worship. I mean, can you imagine getting in the van with your husband and his other wife and the whole way to church? Her going, I don't even know why you're coming with us. Why are you coming to worship? God has obviously forsaken you. You should have stayed home. If you would have stayed home, you could have gotten things ready for a Sabbath meal. On and on and on, the whole way to church. Every single year she experienced this as she went on her pilgrimage with her husband. So we move from Hannah's problem to Hannah's prayer in verses 9 through 11. She goes to the temple. This is a very interesting word here. I remember reading this last week and going, hold on a second, there's no temple yet. The temple doesn't get built until uh, David's son is born, Solomon, and he builds the temple, right? Well, this word seems to just connote the idea that the tabernacle, the tent of worship, was being used and that there might have been a physical structure around it. That makes sense, right? It was basically based in Shiloh. So the author uses the word temple pretty simply here. But she went up to the temple, and verse 10 says she was deeply distressed, and she wept bitterly. She poured out her heart to God and made a humble vow that would cover the entire life of her son. All the days of his life, I will devote him to the Lord, and not a razor will touch his head. What does that mean? That he would be a what? Nazarite. This is a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow could be taken on by anybody, and it could be taken on for a short period of time, a long period of time. But this was unique. This was a lifetime of a Nazarite vow. Samuel not only would be a very hairy man, but he would spend his life in the service of God and the priesthood. That was Hannah's prayer. Let's look at Hannah's peace. Ultimately, she finds the call of our passage to find peace in the plan of the sovereign king. It's fascinating. Eli proves himself to be a pretty lousy pastor in this moment. Again, I think we said this last week. If you came to church on any day that the church was open and you decided to sit in the pink chair and stop and pray, and I came and I was like, What are you doing here? Are you drunk? What are you, It's it's Tuesday. You're not supposed to be here. This is kind of the attitude that Eli had. He immediately resorted to the fact that she must be doing something wrong. So spiritually oblivious to the fact that she was in prayer. Don't you think that a man of God would be able to know if somebody was praying or not? Clearly he has trouble with that. She confesses what's going on. I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. He says, and this is very fascinating too, one more language thing and then I promise I'll stop. But Hannah has used a very personal word in describing the Lord. She's been talking about the Lord, right? She's, she's using his name, not in vain, but as a closeness as she's drawing near to him. And what's fascinating is when Eli responds, if you look at verse 17, he says, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition. He uses a very formal and distant title for God. It's not wrong to say he's the God of Israel. But it would be kind of like if you, in your prayers, instead of bowing your head and saying, Father in heaven, or however you address Jesus, the Father, what personal language you use to say, O oh God of Israel, it would, be, it would be sort of a distant kind of notion. And that, that's very indicative of where Eli is as a priest. And yet Hannah finds peace in the plan of God. and The fact that he is sovereign. How does she find that? J.C. Ryle, we shared this quote at the end of John chapter 21, where he said, everything from beginning to end is foreseen and arranged by one who is too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. That has become a prayer for me so often, reminding myself, God is too wise to make a mistake and he is too loving to do me harm. Even though life may seem to be harming me, even though circumstances that he's allowed seem to be coming against me and messing up everything I want to do. God calls his people to look to him for peace and purpose in his sovereign plan, not in ours. Not to get lost in our own expectations of what things should look like. And that is what Hannah discovered. Why is it so hard for us to discover it? Because we look to our own means of finding peace. We look to things in the world and try to find some way, if I can get this figured out, if I can figure out this barrenness issue, I mean, it's fascinating to think about I don't want to go too deep into the idea of uh, you know, the, the science of today and how people can get assistance in, in pregnancy and, and dealing with this idea of barrenness today, but it would be fascinating to zoom Hannah forward to 2023 and think, well, goodness, there's all sorts of helps, there's all sorts of medical things that can be done so that you can bear a child. My imagination from the story is, not imagination, this is really the story, but in this imaginary scenario, is that Hannah would still be barren. Because what was her problem with her barrenness? We don't get a medical report in 1 Samuel 1 about why she couldn't bear children or whether it was a, a something in Elkanah's part. or No, what we get is simply, and twice in fact, that the Lord had closed her womb. That is significant. And it may be why we are tempted often to look to other means to find peace. Because in our feelings of forgottenness before God, We may even have some good theology. Well, God, you're in control of all these things. I believe that and I know that. And that makes me think maybe you don't care. Maybe you're not doing anything right now in my life. Maybe you're not helping me find that direction or the healing that I need or that provision financially, emotionally, whatever it might be. Church, I want you to remember what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10 11. I said this again last week, and we're doing a lot of review, but it's on purpose. 1 Corinthians 10 11, Paul says that these things that we read in the Old Testament were written, they were an example, but they were written to us for our learning. Hannah's story is for you today to consider. And for us to consider in looking at that story and putting ourselves a little bit in her shoes and then taking her kind of story and recognizing that, hey, our shoes kind of fit the same here today in a lot of ways, we need to recognize the deceptiveness of sin. How easy it is for us to believe a lie that, well, boy, if God has a good design and that's supposed to bring me peace, that that God's got a plan. I mean, goodness, how many times do we console other people? Hey, God's got a plan in this. God's plan's going to come together. Sometimes I know people hear that and they go, I don't want that don't want God's plan to come together. His plan looks terrible, especially if I've sat with somebody and they've poured out how, how difficult life is right now. For me to just kind of throw out there, well, God's got a plan. I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, right? Throw Jeremiah 29 11 outside like it's a fortune cookie. And it's very natural for us to respond and say, I don't know if I want God's plan. I'd like some other plan. I'd like to believe something else about God, perhaps. Maybe the Bible is missing some things. You know, it was written so long ago. I don't know if this has anything to do with my life today. I'm not barren. I don't live in this time. I don't, certainly polygamy is not really a thing, although who knows anymore with the way that people are treating marriage. Maybe you you do, or maybe you have struggled with barrenness or infertility. Maybe you struggle with singleness. Maybe your struggle is just in finding meaning or purpose. The thing that you know is missing in order to find that kind of peace that the Old Testament in Hebrew calls the shalom, this ultimate goal that was so important that they would use it as their greetings. You know, like in Hawaii where they say aloha, they would say shalom as a hello and shalom as a goodbye. Peace was a very central notion in the lives of God's people. Look at Hannah's prayer in verse 11. Look at her verbiage that explains this plight. As we said earlier, the human experience is expressed in prayer. And she says in verse 11, in her vow, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant. Almost as if what she's asking God to do in her prayer is to say, hey, turn your eyes over here. You know, look, we do this with our kids, right? We're like, Hey, you need to pick these crayons up. No, they're right here. And you grab them by the shoulders and go right there. right? In some ways, we have that kind of attitude in prayer. It's tempting to be like, God, hello. Do you know I'm here? Can you turn your eyes upon me? And can you remember me? Again, this isn't necessarily a sinful prayer, but it could be. We could start to really wonder, God, do you remember? Hi, it's me, Nick. Remember me? Don't forget me. It's a pronouncement of God's weakness, perhaps. It's a pronouncement of God's carelessness. It's the reversal of that J.C. Ryle quote that I love so much. That he's too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. Maybe he's not those things. Maybe he isn't too loving. Maybe he isn't as wise as God's word says he is. And so then come in three different offers in Hannah's story. Three different offers, three different misunderstandings that could lead into idolatry. Look at them with me again, if you will. First of all, Elkanah, he offers her purpose in himself. Elkanah offers Hannah purpose in himself. Verse 8, Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? Husbands, I would love for you, and the next time your wives are in trouble or or distressed about something, to just say, am I not more to you than ten sons? Because wives, what are you really hearing there? You're hearing, get over it. You got me. I don't mean to drag Alcana through the mud because he seems to be a really upstanding guy, but he's not very smart in this moment. One commentator pointed out very wisely, it would have been so much better if Alcana would have said, don't you mean more to me than ten sons? I don't want anything from you. I just want you. I love you. Hannah. No, he goes the opposite way. You're fine because you love me. He offers her purpose in himself and basically says about your barrenness, about your struggle, forget it. Forget your struggle. The lie that comes in through this for us is that if the right people accept me, I can find purpose in them, and therefore I can find peace. I'll just use myself as an example. If I get the right kind of response to how the sermon went or how the service went or something that people liked, then I know I did a good job. I better not live by that standard. <laughs> and neither should we in anything we put our hand to, Right? At the end of the week, if your boss just walks by your, by your desk after you've done a huge project for him, and he says nothing about it, how tempting is it to be like, goodness, I don't think I matter here. What's my purpose? But maybe if the right people will accept me and praise me and, and you know, and maybe in one sense, even remind me of how lucky I am to have them around in Elkanah's case, maybe then I'll find peace and purpose. Secondly, Panina offers her thunderous insults. Whereas Elkanah says, forget your problems, Panina says, remember your problems. The temptation is to believe that if the successful people thunder at me, I can never be free from my brokenness. All those people at work, all those people in your neighborhood who have the perfect families, have the perfect jobs, whose cars never break down, who always seem to know how to say exactly the right thing at exactly the right time, and their marriages seem to be absolutely perfect. If the successful people thunder at me, I don't think I'll ever be free of my brokenness. Not until I am like them or until they fail, right? I've used this illustration before, but the number one thing to do when you walk out of a college s exam is to sit in the hallway and pray that somebody comes out just as fast as you did right after that exam. And then as soon as they come out, you want to hear not how good they did, right? You want to hear that they failed, that they bombed that test, right? Maybe you did not. You're very smart people, right? But when, particularly when you've had a difficult exam, it's not that you want to go in there and be like, boy, I sure hope that my buddy did a good job on that test because I know it was tough. It's, I hope they did just as poorly as I did so I can feel what? Better about myself. The successful people are thundering at me I can never be free from this brokenness. Thirdly, Eli offers her an accusation. Whereas Elkanah offers her purpose in himself, Panina offers her thunderous insults, and Eli goes and accuses her. Are you drunk? Are you out of your mind? What is wrong with you? Have you made some poor decisions that have led you to this instance? The temptation may be then from Eli's story here in Hannah's story. That if I can't find peace before the Lord, maybe the world has something else for me. Maybe I can pour into my life something like alcohol, something like pornography, something like gambling, some other temptation, some kind of self-absorption. Right? That, that God himself is forgetting me, is not even looking on me, and that the man of God tells me, you must be drunk if you're here at nighttime before the temple of the Lord. I wouldn't expect anything else from somebody like you, Eli says. It foreshadows the forthcoming issue that Israel as a nation will have. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, and verse 5, they call out to Samuel. They say, look, you're old. That's a really nice thing to say to start with. You're old, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. The thing that we've been missing is not our exclusivity from worldliness, but we've been missing the inclusion of worldliness. That there are good things out there that if we could just bring them into the church, into our individual Christian lives, maybe then we won't have these problems. This is not as idiotic as it sounds. It is pretty idiotic. But notice at the beginning in that verse 5 of chapter 8, he says, you're old. You're not going to last forever. Your sons don't walk in your ways. The men of God, the people of God in my life are failing me. They're sinful just like the rest of the world. So give us what the world has. Let's get drunk. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, then let's eat, drink, and be merry because tomorrow we what? Die. It's all over at that point. And so, through our despair and receiving lies, pride creeps in. And we know how God responds to the proud, He opposes the proud. Part of the big message in 1 Samuel is that God opposes those who would stand up to him and say, I am something. I have figured something out. You see, it starts with Hannah being in a place of brokenness in sorrow and in loss. And there's a danger that that brokenness and sorrow and emptiness could turn to something outside of who God is for his people. Turn to something worldly and say, I'll find my fulfillment in that, and I will dive headfirst into it. And it's a danger for the people of God today, just as it was then. When following Christ doesn't bring our preferred results, we so easily try to seek peace elsewhere. And I know this could be, you could say, well, there's not that big thing going on in my life like this, But, but don't you let the little things kind of get you down? Don't you let the little things kind of become idols? When you need to replace the brakes on your car and you realize, oh my goodness, I'm not going to be able to drive to work today, and and you take your car to the shop and they say, well, there's something else wrong with it, and you go, good grief, my life is not going to get back together until this car gets back together. It's a little thing, but it becomes a big thing when we allow them to take the place that God alone is to inhabit for us. So let's look at Hannah's big turning point. One commentary, commentary, the um, author says, power does not rest in position, but in posture. Look at Hannah's posture in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. This is the turning point for her. Eli was sitting out there. Yes, this is all true. Verse 10, she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She goes out and in her own words, she says, I am pouring out my heart before the Lord. When she felt powerless, she changed her position, her posture. She went to a posture of prayer. So we too must rise and go to Christ with all of our needs, big and small. Not just because, yes, he does want to satisfy our needs, but if we don't run to Christ with our needs, if we run somewhere else, or if we just kind of say, eh, these things are not a big deal to God, or, or they're not spiritual, or however we categorize them, they can so easily become sin. And I think that Hannah's moment of rising and going to the temple is not just her realization like the prodigal son who, remember when he came to himself and says, good grief? If he didn't say good grief, but he said, boy, all the servants in my father's house have bread, and I'm sitting here trying to eat this pig slop. I'm going to arise, go to my father, and I'll say, I've sinned in heaven's sight, and before you, take me as one of your servants. That is true in Hannah's life, but I think she's also at least teaching us. There's a danger that if we don't rise and go to Christ, we will rise and go somewhere else. God's sovereign plan in our lives is not meant to deter us from action, but to spur us into action, to cause us to rise up and say, I'm going to God now. I'm going to prayer. Enough is enough. I've been listening to the thunderous um, anger of my my husband's other wife. I've been listening to his attempts at consoling me. I've even been listening to the religious people in my life. I'm going to start listening to God. I'm going to go straight to him. The question from the beginning then of what do we do when it feels like the Lord has forgotten us turns into the true question. Has the Lord forgotten you? Hannah realized the temple of the Lord is right there and I could go there and pray. God is accessible to me and church, is he not accessible to you today? Because Christ has torn down the dividing wall between us and God and given us perfect access so that even as the words escape my mouth, you could be going to the throne of your heavenly Father in prayer. That as you get in your car and drive home, you could be communing with him. You say, Lord, I just I don't know what's for lunch. I don't know what to do the rest of the day. Would you please help me in the little tiny things? And then Would you help me in the huge things? What a wonderful thing it must have been for Hannah to enter into the kingdom of God and recognize her perfect, always access to God. She had to go to the temple. We don't. Christ has made us collectively the temple. Christ has become the temple that was torn down so that we could be built up. Do you remember in John 9, one of my favorite stories about the man born blind and the disciples ask Jesus, well, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him that he was born blind? Well, whose punishment or what, where is this punishment coming from? And Jesus says it's not because of sin but it's for the glory of God. And this is what's true of Hannah's life as well. What did Hannah do so wrong that she was barren for so long? It's not the plan. The plan, it's not her sin. It is the plan of God, it is the purpose of God's glory. And that is the reality that we step into when we look at verse 5 and we see, though the Lord had closed her womb, He doesn't do these kinds of things willy nilly and at random. He doesn't say, hey, look, I've made too many too many moms here. I need to make this woman not a mom. No, he's a plan for all of us. And whatever it is that we might be lacking, he is actually creating space for something else. So Hannah takes action. It's really interesting that her accusation from Eli was that she's drunk, and she says the opposite. No, I'm not filling up on worldly things. I'm pouring out before the Lord. And so are we called to do before Christ as well. And she found peace. She avoided sin in this whole story, which is commendable, because our sin cuts us off from the peace of God. Colossians 2.20 says that through Christ, God reconciled to himself all things, whether on heaven or in earth, making peace by the blood of his cross. Church, whatever you're facing, big or small this morning, you have peace with God through the blood of Christ that is available to you. It's not dependent on your experience. It's dependent on whether God says and does what he says and does. Christ has afforded us peace and a purpose because of the cross. He has not forgotten us. Even in the moments where it seems he has forgotten us, it is so often that in those forgotten moments that God is working so deeply in your life that there's no room for other things to happen. That that thing that seems to be stalled and is just stuck in one place is very much a sign that the Lord is working deeply in your heart and is removing another distraction in one sense. Romans 8, 31 and 32, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own Son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Have you ever considered the beauty of that question? If God didn't spare his Son if he went to the lengths that he did to deal with your sin and make you new, is there something he wouldn't give you? Is there something more valuable than Christ that he would say, no, you're not worth this. I'll give you Jesus instead. No, Jesus is the most valuable thing. And he was offered so that we might have peace at the place of our hearts before God to go to him in our trials and to trust in his plan, his sovereign plan. And this is what Hannah did. Hannah's story shows us that when God doesn't change our circumstances, he's working on changing us. And that is a good thing, church. That's why your circumstances seem so long sometimes. Because it takes a long time to change your heart. It could take years. It could take decades. It could take sorrow. It could take loss. But he's working on you in the midst of those things. And if you don't have trial and difficulty in your life right now, you might as well pray for it. I mean, I know none of us want to, but seriously, if that's how God works, I want to be more like Christ. He's gone to such a length to make me His and to make me like Him. What could I do but rightly respond by saying, Lord, whatever it takes, make me like Christ. Some of these things that it takes are very, very difficult. And we need to trust in the favor of Christ. And that word favor is very important. In verse 18, Hannah says to Eli, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Do you know what Hannah's name means? It means favor. So in one sense she's saying, let favor find favor in your eyes. Your whole identity in Christ is grace. It's all based on grace. Same word for favor in the Hebrew is the, this, charis word, this Greek word charis, which means grace. It's the same exact thing. We're saved by grace and we live by Grace. Our faith is expressed by trusting in the grace of Christ, the unmerited favor, getting a good thing that we do not deserve, including circumstances that don't seem to change so that God can change us. Hannah says, may I find favor in your sight. It's a thing that she says to Eli, but truly it's her prayer before the Lord. I've made a vow. I'll offer my son up. I'll, I'll relinquish all those things, the retirement plan, the farm hand, um, the... Uh, at, at, my participation in the national goal of military and economy. I'll forfeit all those things because that's not really what Hannah found that she wanted. What she wanted was to live a life that was pleasing and glorifying to God. She wanted to be a part of God's sovereign plan, laid out all the way in chapter 3, verse 15 of Genesis, and brought to this moment today for her. She was looking to find favor, and in that she found peace. Hannah finds peace in the presence and plan of the sovereign king of Israel, not in the resolution of her problems. And so she offers up all the earthly benefits of having a son. She goes, you know what? All the reasons that I felt sad that I had no son, I don't even care if you meet those. I just want to do something that's glorifying to you. And that is the change that he was working in her and this is the change that he's working in us. Christ shows us that contentment and peace and purpose is available in him even if our circumstances don't change. And it is God's good design in withholding something good in order to grant us the ability to find peace in his eternal plan today. So, in closing, I have a slide for you for just three last things that might be helpful. If you want to take a picture with your phone, if that would be helpful, or you can write them down or just read them, whatever's helpful. But there are three ways. Remember, our theme is equipped. So I'm trying to think about this word equipped in our application time at the end. Three ways that we are equipped for peace in the favor of Christ then. First of all, we have freedom from worldly approval or standards. We don't need to put our hope for approval, our hope for prosperity, our hope for acceptance in a spouse, in a neighbor, in a co-worker, in any of those things. Now, it's good to have a good reputation, right? Paul calls us to have a reputation of love and to, as much as it depends on us, live at peace among amongst ourselves. This is not... Don't walk out of here and get all angsty about your faith, right? <laughs> you know? Don't turn this into like, only God accepts me and I don't care what you think. No, but be free from worldly approval and worldly standards. When the world around you says, hey, you're as good as dead if you don't have a child. This is what the Jewish Talmud said, the teachings of the Pharisees. If you were barren, you were as good as dead. Whatever the world says, if you're this, you're as good as that. You can be free of those things by trusting and being equipped by the peace that we find in Christ. Secondly, we have freedom from needing circumstances changed. This is a hard one for me because I I love to know how to pray for you. And there are times that I want to express to you this truth, and so I'm just going to do it now. Sometimes it's those circumstances that you say, this is what I really need prayer for, that God's not interested in changing just yet. Not that you shouldn't pray for them. Hannah prayed for her circumstances. But notice why we stopped at verse 18. Do you remember I asked you to look at the next few verses? Because we don't get the birth of Samuel, and oh, everything was happy. This is my problem with some Christian movies, right? In the end, well, goodness, it's such a hard life, but then they became a Christian, and everything was perfect, everything was fine, right? That's not the experience of the Bible. Samuel is born, and that's wonderful, but Hannah finds her joy before her circumstances change. She finds her peace before her circumstances change. And in Christ, we can be equipped to do the same. Last thing, we can have freedom to pour out prayer to him who pours grace on us. I mean, it's a wonderful thing to know that when we go to God in prayer, he is not interested in passing you crumbs from the table. But if you remember in the Gospel of John, but Jesus said that out of the hearts of those people whom God calls to be worshipers of him, they will flow with living water. That is the grace that he pours out on us, the favor that we have in Christ. Being accepted in Christ doesn't mean that you are a second-rate believer in any case. You are not the barren wife in compared to anyone. We are all sons and daughters of the Most High God, joint heirs with Christ. And so we have peace. the favor we share in him. Would you bow your heads and pray with me, please? Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for the power of it, for the truth of it. We thank you, Lord, that through it we might find peace that passes all of our understanding because it can't be manufactured anywhere else. Help us, Lord, to adhere to your plan, to trust in your sovereign will, to know that you are indeed too wise to err and too loving to do us harm. I know that's a hard thing for some of us that are going through some really difficult things, maybe today, maybe in the past. Lord, remind us of your past faithfulness. Remind us of our hope of glory that one day we will indeed see you face to face. And we will say, you have done all things well. You don't make mistakes. Help us to trust you. And would you receive all the glory for it? In Jesus' name, amen.